Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back for another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and today is episode number 46, Conservation is Going to the Dogs. I really want to get rolling on today's episode, so I'll make this quick. And really, we're talking about dogs. I love dogs, love talking about them, love being around them. Honestly, I love dogs more than most people. Today, I'm going to be talking with Kayla Fratt. She's a communications and outreach coordinator with Working Dogs for Conservation. Kayla is a trained biologist and experienced dog handler, and after receiving her degree in biology from Colorado College, she discovered she could link her love of biology with conservation detection dogs. I'll let her give you the details on what Working Dogs for Conservation is about, because this is such a cool conversation that we had. So let's just dive right in and get started. Where are you based out of? So we are primarily based out of Missoula, Montana, but we have a couple staff members in Bozeman and then scattered around the U.S. as well. This is absolutely amazing to me. Can you tell us a little bit about what Working Dogs for Conservation is and how it got started? Yeah, so Working Dogs for Conservation, what we are is we're an organization that rescues high-drive, ball-crazy dogs um, from shelters, and then as well, um, we also get some career change dogs from other um, working dog organizations, so service dogs or military dogs primarily. Um, And then we train those dogs to sniff out various um, targets um, for conservation purposes. So we kind of tend to divide that up into three different buckets. Um, So one is wildlife crime. So we've got dogs that are trained to sniff out things like ivory, rhino horn, and bushmeat. And those dogs are integrated into customs or anti-poaching units. Most of those dogs work internationally. Um, Our second bucket is ecological monitoring. So those are dogs that are sniffed to find um, everything from live black-footed ferrets to the scat of jaguars. Um, And we can get hired by research organizations to go do population estimates, feeding, um, dispersion, kind of whatever they're interested in, um, just to monitor habitats and the wildlife that lives there, primarily with endangered and threatened species. And then the third thing that we do is we work with environmental threats. So we've got dogs that are trained to find invasive species like the zebra mussels that you were talking about, um, as well as some different invasive plants. Um, we also have dogs that have been trained to find environmental contaminants. Um, so poisons or um, pesticides that are in um, either in the environment or in the feces of animals. Um, And then we've also done some work with disease as well. So we did a really interesting project with brucellosis, which is a disease that affects a lot of ungulates. um, And there we were looking at elk. um, So finding scat of elk that had been infected with brucellosis versus healthy elk. Well, so that is a wide ranging amount of things that a dog could do. Are you sort of doing, not you personally, but as a group, are you sort of taking uh, the training of dogs as sort of a general training and then figuring out what they're gonna be specialized in or is it trying to specialize them from the start? There, most of our dogs actually aren't very specialized at all. So from the dog's point of view, it's all kind of the same thing. All he or she is doing is using her nose to find this thing 
that then earns them their ball. Um, so from the dog's point of view, whether they're finding an invasive plant or the scat of an endangered species or a pesticide, it's all the same thing. It's all the same kind of game to them. Um, it's kind of like playing hide-and-go-seek is different when you're looking for different people, but it's still kind of the same game. Who are the people or who are the organizations that are paying for having the dogs and the handlers out? Uh, I'm sure it's a, a wide range, um, but yeah. could you give me a, you know, three or four examples of some organizations that are paying to have these dogs there and why they feel it's important? Yeah, so you know, we work with quite a few different government organizations. So they will come in um, and have us either, a lot of times there we're looking at invasive species where a government or um, political body has been tasked with removing or mitigating an invasive species. So um, with our zebra mussel work last summer, we had a contract with the National Park Service to go in and do um, boat inspections. And that was kind of a trial run to see whether or not that was something we'd want to be doing long-term. We also have partnered with a lot of other nonprofits and research organizations. So things like um, the Wildlife Ecology Institute, um, and a lot of times we'll work with both at the same time. So a, a recent Black-Footed Ferret project that we did, we were working with Arizona Game and Fish, as well as the Wildlife Ecology Institute to put that all together. Um, and then we also get funding from grants and private donors. So a lot of our work in Africa um, with the anti-poaching units in Zambia and Tanzania are funded by those foundations, by some grants, and then also by private funders and private donors who are interested in that specific sort of work. Society seems to be really trying to go towards technology for mm -hmm. finding things, right? That, that's our human nature is to try to make life easier on ourselves by providing technology that can do the work faster, quicker, easier, uh, mm -hmm. hopefully at some point cheaper. But that's not happening whenever we're using dogs, right? We're actually sort of going backwards in our evolution uh, and using dogs. So why is it that the dogs are able to work so well under these conditions and finding whether it's invasive species or ivory or something like that? Yeah, so it is definitely like technically feasibly possible to make a mass spectrometer that would detect certain chemical signatures in the air and then put it on wheels and carry it around in order to find these different odor signatures. Um, so far, <laughs> those um, have not been really viable. Um, and the way that we kind of look at it is right now we have this amazing animal that we've, um, as a species, been working to protect for tens of thousands of years um, and been working to breed and train these animals to work with us and use their noses to find stuff again for tens of thousands of years and right now um you know our dogs are weatherproof they carry themselves in the field they don't mind if it's snowy if it's rainy um if the terrain is really really difficult and you know until we get to the point where not only do we have the odor detection technology um but we also can i don't know put it on a drone um, that could be easily flown by a rookie scientist in all sorts of conditions. Dogs are still just going to be a lot easier for a lot of the sorts of projects that we're doing um, because we work in a lot of really, really tough environmental outdoor conditions where you just wouldn't want to be tasked with carrying around the technology, even if it did exist on your back. 
is this something that anyone can train their dog to do and then just sort of put their um basically volunteer their time and their dog for your organization or are you trying to put trained dogs in the hands of people that really know what they're doing yeah unfortunately so while it is true that any dog can be trained to sniff out a hidden object um all dogs have this ability any dog that eats food you could train to find something in exchange for food um we only work with a very very select group of dogs um with experienced handlers um so we find that about one in a thousand dogs has what it takes for the level of work that we ask them to do um, because we're looking for dogs that basically are comfortable with being loaded up in a truck um, driven 30 hours across the country get out of the truck three days later and hit the ground running ready to work for long days in any condition working with strange people around strange things around wildlife so these dogs have to be really confident not interested in chasing squirrels um and just incredibly resilient as well as having a good nose they have to be physically sound so there's a lot that goes into selecting the right dog for this job again even though yeah technically any dog has the technical physical capacity to do some degree of this work um, and then on the handler side, sometimes when people come out into the field with us, it looks like the handler is just hiking behind the dog, but we're actually constantly watching our dogs, seeing what their tail is doing, seeing what their nose is doing. Does the dog seem hot? Does the dog seem tired? Is the dog interested but confused? Um, and constantly working to support the dog and make sure that we're noting that, hey, the dog showed a change of behavior over here, but didn't actually show a final alert behavior. Um, so we might want to go back and check because sometimes they get thrown off by weird scents um, and they'll actually have shown a change of behavior where they could have alerted and there will actually be a viable sample near there. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it on the handler side as well. Yeah, as a uh, bird dog owner uh, of two bird dogs, I know all about uh, watching the dogs. I'm sure yeah. at that level, it's a little more specific. Um, of things that you're looking for and a little more stressful. I'm just going for a nice walk in the field, um, trying to support my dogs, but I definitely watch them. And you can definitely tell uh, there's a, you know, a moment in time when you can tell those dogs are all of a sudden very interested in a scent of typically the bird that we're looking for. Mm -hmm. We had in a previous uh, podcast episode, we had a very basic introduction to scent work. Uh, and doing it more in a, a trial setting. Um, yeah. And so that that's why I guess I, I ask if how you can become someone that works with the organization with your dog, but one in a thousand, that is very slim odds to, to be yeah. a good conservation working dog. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a really exclusive club. Um, and you might have better odds if you go with a breeder. Um, but we, part of our mission is that we work with rescue dogs. So we do, we find a lot of dogs that have the ball drive that we want, but they don't have the physical stamina or they're nervous of men or, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, and with a, yeah, yeah. With with your own personal dog, you could make a lot more progress than we're able to because we're really asking these dogs to be professionals who can do this work full time. 
So have you noticed like a certain breed of dog that seems to excel in this situation or is it sort of wide ranging? I mean, you have in the hunting community, you have specific breeds that are good Mm -hmm. for upland birds or good for waterfowl. Uh, In the agility uh, arena, you have specific breeds, you know, like Shelties and Border Collies that really Mm -hmm. seem to do well. Is do you see the same deal where you're finding certain breeds work extremely well, or does it run a sort of pretty wide gamut? Both. Um, <laughs> so we do see a lot of the same breeds popping up over and over in our pack. Um, we get a lot of shepherds, so the Malinois and German shepherds. We get a lot of labs and we get a lot of border collies. Um, we have also had in our pack, you know, kind of like Weimaraners, pointers, some of those bird dog type dogs. Um, we've had a Springer Spaniel. Um, you know, there, there are certain breeds that really tend to pop up again. I know um, some other groups that do this sort of work end up with a lot of healers and cattle dogs. Um, we haven't actually had many, um, but I'm not quite sure if that's kind of the population of the dogs in the shelter that we work with or you know, to be perfectly honest, we also have some handler preference in, you know, I really like working with border collies. One of our other handlers really likes working with labs. A third one really likes working with Malinois. We all kind of have our preferences based on how we train and how we work with the dogs in the field. Um, so there is some wiggle room with that. Um, but I wouldn't expect to ever have working dogs for conservation employing certain breeds like huskies or greyhounds or pugs there are just some breeds where i would be shocked um either for physical or behavioral reasons if they were ever really all that successful at this job yeah that makes uh, a whole lot of sense Uh, how many dogs and handlers do you have working for the organization at any given time so we have 35 dogs kind of total within the organization plus or minus you know we've always got a couple dogs in training and we're kind of seeing whether or not they're going to make it through the program um, and if they don't, then we rehome them. Um, and then we've got dogs, you know, retiring out. Um, so the, it plus or minus 35. Um, and then we have 11 people on staff within that. Um, we probably have like seven um, handlers who really are out in the field quite a bit. We very occasionally will also subcontract out to people, but those tend to be people that we've had long relationships with. Maybe they worked with us in the past and then have moved on to other jobs, but still come on and help us out for six weeks every summer or something. Um, so it is something where it's, we're a small organization. It's, it's definitely a hard field to break into. And a lot of our handlers um, have kind of this, this, at least two different buckets of experience before we, they get hired. Um, and that is some work with detection dogs and generally quite a bit of work with um, biology as well. So I have a degree in biology. I'd been working as a field biologist in the past. I also spent most of my last five years working as a professional dog trainer. Um, our other, one of our other most recent hires had been working as a detection dog handler with um, I think Washington um, law enforcement. So she'd been doing some contraband work. So she had a strong background in our wildlife crime area. Um, One of our other recent hires has worked as a sled dog handler, also as a biologist. So we tend to get those same pairings of needing experience in both buckets before we're really interested in hiring someone. 
Yeah, I was just about to ask that how you got involved in this. Like what what is the for for every career that someone has, there's a reason why they got into it. Sometimes it's because of need, but a lot of times and, and hopefully it's because they're drawn to it for some specific reason. So what is the the one or two things that you're like, this this is why I wake up every day and, and do what I'm doing? Yeah. So I mean, my personal story is I'm one of those kids who was always kind of an animal nut. Um, I had a pet toad as a child named Tony Wardface that like he died when I was like three and my parents tell me that I sobbed for days saying he was my only friend. Um, <laughs> like I was always that kid growing up. Um, and then I went to college and I figured, okay, I really like animals. I don't think I want to be a vet. That doesn't really speak to me. I think I want to do field biology and that's how I'm going to work with animals. Um, through that, I started getting really interested specifically in animal behavior because that is very, that's much more observational. You get to spend more time either watching the animals or interacting with the animals versus, you know, if you're interested in like migration patterns or something, you're not necessarily actually looking at the animals all that often. Um, and then from there, I kind of, I accidentally got a job as a dog trainer um, early on in college. I uh, had a job as a dog walker and started training the dogs during their walks because it made my life easier. Um, if the dogs knew to sit at crosswalks and walk nicely on leash, and then I realized, like, oh, I'm really good at this, and people started paying me to do that. Um, so I was kind of continuing to pursue the field biology track while also really building a lot of skills as a dog trainer, and I didn't think that I ever wanted to be a dog trainer. I thought that that was, like, why am I going to college and getting this degree in ecology if I'm then just going to be a dog trainer? And I kind of turned my nose up as, at the career. Um, and I don't know why I had that perception, but I did. Um, graduated college, um, got a degree at a conservation nonprofit in communications. Didn't really like it. It was a very political job. They do a lot of lobbying and door knocking. And I was there in 2016 and it was just exhausting <laughs> um, to be there during a presidential election year. Um, so then I left that job, got a job at um, one of the largest animal shelters in the country on the behavior team. And I did nothing but train dogs and cats there for two years. Um, but meanwhile, I had heard about this field of detection, of conservation detection dogs. Um, and I was thinking like, oh, that's what I want to be doing because I like being outside. I like protecting the environment. I also really like what I get out of dog training as far as like my relationship with the animal, the hands-on experience. Like I find that really fun. Um, so it was a way to kind of fulfill like a mission or a, a, a passion that I've always had of protecting the environment while also doing something that I find really, really fun. Um, and so I knew that's kind of where I wanted to be going. And I kind of watched the field for about three years in between when I heard about conservation detection dogs and when I finally got this job, because again, it's just such a small field. There really aren't that many organizations that do this. Um, and how I actually ended up landing this job is I was applying for a Fulbright grant to go to grad school to study the selection and training of conservation detection dogs. And I reached out to Working Dogs for Conservation, asking them for help with that grant. Um, just, you know, like, hey, can I pick your brain, talk to you a little bit um, as I'm writing this grant. Um, I ended up not getting the grant, but when they were hiring again, about a year after I had initially met them, they knew who I was and they knew that I was passionate. Um, and they let me know that the job was open and I applied and I got it. It's crazy how the different steps and different things that we do throughout life all of a sudden can sort of 
converge into something that you really enjoy to do. Um, yeah. So can, can you give me an example of maybe your favorite job, you know, as far as going out and doing the detection work, what your favorite one was or interesting one, or even just maybe the most recent, which, whichever it is yeah. easiest for you to come to mind. Yeah, I think one of my favorites that I've done so far was actually that zebra muscle work. So my dog, Barley, um, one of our other dogs, um, Tobias, and I got to spend about two weeks in Yellowstone National Park last summer um, doing zebra muscle um, inspections on boats. Um, and it was just, it was a really fun project for me in particular. I really like hanging out with a lot of people. Um, and we were stationed at boat ramps in one of the largest national parks um, and busiest national parks in the world, frankly. And so, you know, I'm getting to check the boats with the dogs, um, really be helpful to the rangers because the dogs are really quick. Um, and I'm getting to spend a lot of time educating people. And what we saw a lot of was that people would be really interested in the work that we were doing because we had the dogs. Um, you know, normally people aren't really excited to get their boats inspected because it just means they have to slow down. It means they have to wait um, before they get to actually launch their boats. But when they get to see dogs doing it, they got interested. Um, so that was a really cool educational opportunity. Um, we also had a couple times where it was also just genuinely really useful to have the dogs with us. Um, so one example was there was someone who came up um, and they had their boat on the front of their trailer and then two jet skis on it as well. And so you're not allowed to launch jet skis in Yellowstone. Um, so they didn't get the jet skis inspected. But as they're going to launch their boat, which had been expected and cleared, um, the jet skis were actually going into the water, which means that if those jet skis were infected with zebra mussels, they could be potentially infecting the lake, right? So, you know, we saw that, all the rangers kind of freaked out. We run over, we get them to pull the trailer back out of the water, and we start doing a full-on inspection of the, um, of the jet skis. And one of the things that I can't explain to you exactly why, because um, I don't really understand motors, um, but jet skis are really, really difficult to inspect well, um, just because of the way the jet works, I guess. Um, and you can never fully clean, drain, and dry them, which is normally what we recommend. If your boat is completely clean, you've drained it, and it's totally dry, then any of the invasive species on it are dead. Um, but you can't actually do that with a jet ski. <clears throat> So they're really difficult to inspect visually, but we were able to get the dogs to come over and we know that the dogs can smell zebra mussels if the mussels were inside of that jet. Um, as long as they get their nose right on it, both of the dogs ran through um, and showed absolutely no interest in the jet skis at all. And it was just one of those times where it was really, really useful to have the dogs there to kind of back us up um, and confirm that it wasn't that big of a deal. Or, I mean, it was still a big deal, but the boats were clean. So we've talked on this podcast before about in, invasive species. Um, for the most part, when we've talked about it, we've talked about from sort of a, a plant uh, invasive mm -hmm. species. Um, zebra mussels, obviously aquatic, but why is it so important to inspect these boats before they go into, for example, Yellowstone National Park and into their, like, why do we need to identify if a boat has zebra mussels and what makes them invasive? So zebra mussels are native to Ukraine and the waterways around there. Um, 
And like most invasive species, the main problem is they don't have any natural predators, so their population can kind of grow unchecked if they get introduced to an area. And so these zebra mussels, they're really, really tiny, like the size of your fingernail, but they kind of grow into these big reef organizations um, that can clog drainage um, for kind of municipal water or dams, which can cause massive amounts of really expensive damage. Um, they also will cut up swimmers' feet, feet and kind of ruin swimming areas. Um, and then they are filter feeders. So they filter out the water, which makes it look really clear and pretty, but also means that there's no nutrients left for any of the native animals to eat, if there are any native animals that are filter feeders, which there are. Um, and then with Yellowstone in particular, you know, obviously Yellowstone is the world's first national park. It's an incredibly special place. It's just not a place we ever want um, to be artificially changed by an invasive species. But also Yellowstone Lake is the head of a watershed. So if we were to get mussels in that lake, those mussels would continue going downstream and would infect a lot of other areas that are currently pristine. So it's a really important area for a lot of reasons. And part of it is just because it would also infect areas that are currently unaffected. So you mentioned that you were there for about two weeks. Uh, mm -hmm. How do they inspect these boats whenever your dogs aren't there? Is it just a visual inspection? Are they yeah. inspecting every single boat every day? They are. So they are required to inspect every single boat every day um, before you get your launch permit. Um, and yeah, they're inspecting visually. And you can be quite successful with visual inspections on your own. Um, but what, the dogs are a lot faster, <laughs> um, which is really nice. And, you know, as we kind of talked about just now, it's nice to have that backup, um, especially with certain parts of the boat can be really hard to inspect visually. And then one of the other really cool things we found is we actually did a study that found that the dogs are also able to sniff out the microscopic veligers of zebra mussels. So a veliger is kind of the larvae and they're microscopic and they can survive in water. So if you've got, you know, a little inch of water kind of in that bottom corner of your kayak or something, there could be villagers in there, which is part of, again, why we say you always need to clean, drain, and dry your boat. But again, sometimes it's really hard to get that last inch of water out, and there could be villagers in there, and a human has just no chance to find them because they're microscopic, but the dogs can sniff them out. Everything that you talk about with these dogs, just for me, just really puts in perspective just how amazing their noses are and what they're yeah. able to do um, just in in the dog's case, in this case, just for fun. Uh, you know, yeah. they think this is fun and, and I get to play a little bit with the ball once I do my job. Um, it, it's I'm always amazed and astounded by what dogs are able to do. And then also with that, how people can take what a dog's able to do and make our lives a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the things I really love about this, and it's part of what makes me really passionate about the work. Um, you know, as I said, I think part of why I love this work is it's that marriage of a mission that I really believe in and also doing work that I find really fun. Um, you know, I so my dog and I also do agility training, and that's just really fun. I love it. Um, but it doesn't give me the same level of satisfaction as seeing my dog find you know, a black-footed ferret, one of the rarest mammals in North America, um, because it's just as fun to train my dog to do that as it is to train him to do agility. But we're also really doing really important work. And that's just, it's something that for me is really, really hard to beat as, um, you know, it's, it's intoxicating. 
with border collies, uh, agility, that is definitely a great way to get them to expend some energy. Um, I have two dogs uh, right mm-hmm. now, as I've already mentioned many, many times on this podcast, and um, they're both starting to, one is really close to aging out of upland bird hunting. The other one has another couple of years. So I'm already starting to look at getting a new puppy, uh, which would, if I do it anytime soon, is going to make it three dogs in the house, which is going to really push the boundaries for me and my wife. How many dogs do you have uh, in your house at any given time? I personally usually just have one. I have a second um, foster dog right now, um, but that is a temporary thing, actually coronavirus related. Um, So I generally just have the one. I'm hoping to add a second here um, in the next year or so. Um, And whether that will be, so we foster dogs for work as well. Um, Since the dogs are owned by the organization, they still live with handlers. So I'm either going to be adding a personal dog, which would be another border collie puppy probably, or I might take on a, um, a working dog foster. But I'm a little unusual in that. Um, most of my coworkers have between two and up to five um, dogs living with them. That's usually kind of a mix of working dogs and personal dogs that live with them. Yeah, I, I sort of expect, I, you expect people that work with animals on a daily basis or dogs uh, to have multiples of dogs and, and many dogs. Um, the lady that I had on uh, for the scent work, at the time she only had two dogs, but at one point whenever um, in the past, because uh, I've known her for a couple of years, uh, she had up to, I think, eight dogs in her house. And it's just, yeah. I-, I love dogs. Um, a- any dog I see, I will pet, which this coronavirus deal has made it very difficult for me. You know, you see a dog, someone walking a dog, I want to pet that dog, but I want to keep that social distancing. Um, but having more than two or ooh, I'd never thought I'd say possibly having three. I mean, that it's just a little too much for me and just mainly my work schedule more than anything else. I totally understand. I, I'm a, I'm a dog lover. I love that I get to train dogs all the time for work. Um, I think two is probably about my max. <laughs> um, personally, comfortably, although I, I will say it also kind of depends on the training status of the dogs. You know, I would, I have a hard time envisioning myself having two dogs that both need a lot of training at the same time, but my current border collie, he's six. Most, if I'm being honest, all of the training that we're doing at this point is fun or it's work related. Um, um, so, that reduces the level of work for me versus, you know, if I do bring on a puppy, that's going to be hours and hours every week of trying to actually get stuff done. That is really important for my sanity. Um, so I, I agree, honestly. And I really like being able to spend all of my time and energy on my one dog. You know, it just means he gets so much more out of life than if I had to divide my attention between four dogs. That said, you know, a lot of people, do really, really well with a lot of dogs and I admire them. I don't know how they do it. If people want to get involved with working dogs for conservation or help out or even just learn about what it is that that you do as an organization, what can they do? Where can they go? How can they find out more information or get involved? Well, you guys all know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say follow us on social media, check out our website. So it's Working Dogs for Conservation on Instagram and Facebook, and then it's wd4c.org on the website. 
So, you know, you can always find stuff there. And then as far as getting involved and helping out, the number one thing that we're always looking for is more donations. So if you've got any spare money that you're interested in donating, you can do that. You can also change us to your Amazon Smile charity of choice, which then doesn't add any um, fees for you. But Amazon will donate, I think it's 0.5% of any of your purchases to us. So set us as your charity of choice. It doesn't cost you anything. Um, and then as far as actually helping out, if you guys are in Montana, shoot us an email and we might have some opportunities for you. Um, we do occasionally have other volunteer opportunities kind of around the country, but I, I don't want to overpromise there. I will say it is, it, we get a lot of inquiries and we don't have all that much opportunity to volunteer. So other ways that you can help out is you can just be an ambassador for all things conservation related and all things animal welfare related. So one of the big pushes that we're really helping um, spearhead here in Missoula is trying to get more people to clean up their dog's poop on trails um, because part of our mission is dogs helping wildlife and wild places. So if you want to bring a spare poop bag whenever you're going out and pick up, you know, other people's crap, um, we appreciate it. It helps us out. It really helps spread the mission and you're not helping us directly, but you're helping the community at large. So that's something that you can do pretty easily from home. Yeah, that's a that's a great tip. I am notorious with my group of friends and my family for uh, bringing home more trash than anything else when I go for a hike or go for a hunt uh, that I mm -hmm. see, you know, laying around. So now I'll probably take a couple poop bags with me. And if I do see something, um, you know, bring some of that home too, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not the um it's not the most fun volunteer opportunity that I can possibly give you, but it it is something. Um it's and you know, you can always look for opportunities to help pull invasive weeds in your area. Um I think playcleango.org has um lists of ways to get involved for that. Um so you know, anything that you can do to really help out conservation and or dogs um helps us. Yeah, that's something that we try to promote as well is that, you know, just small little actions and if everyone would participate in doing those small little actions uh, we can do some really big things it doesn't always have to be big grand gestures to uh, help out conservation and help out wildlife yeah absolutely uh, as far as uh, the donations can they just do that through the website yep you can just donate to us on our website you can also donate um, via Facebook but then you know Mark Zuckerberg gets your information as well so take take that how you will. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely um, you can donate on our website. You can also sign up for our newsletter and then about once a month, you'll get an update on what us and our dogs are up to around the world. Um, although you'll get more frequent updates from that um, on Instagram and Facebook as well. That's great. I will be signing up for that newsletter in just a couple minutes. That's, that yeah. was always, I always like to know what dogs and people and their dogs are up to. Uh, definitely. Well, Kayla, thank you for coming on. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to share that maybe we missed? No, I think the only thing to throw in there just for the newsletter um, is it's currently hidden all the way down in our footer of our website. We're working on changing that, but if you get to our website and you can't find it, it's hidden all the way at the bottom. It's a little um, annoying. Um, but no, I don't think we've got anything to add. Um, you know, just get out there and enjoy time outdoors with your dogs um, and be a responsible dog owner. Um, we appreciate all of that. Awesome. Again, thank you, Kayla, for coming on. Really appreciate it. And um, 
good luck with the social distancing and hopefully you can get out there working safer in the near future. Yeah, we're hoping so. Seriously, can a job get much better than that? You're in the outdoors, you're working in conservation, and your partner and best friend is a dog? I mean, come on. Seriously, it doesn't get any better than that. Like Kayla mentioned, you can find working dogs for conservation on Instagram. You can find them on Facebook. Just search working dogs for conservation and it's going to pop right up. I highly recommend looking at their website, wd4, the number 4, c.org. They got some great information on there, some cool pictures, and you can donate right to their cause, which is a great cause. Being able to detect these invasive species or uh, illegal animal trade items, I mean, that is a huge part about conservation, right? So if we can have dogs helping us with with this detection, I'm all for it. Until next week, stay wild. Mm